All right, I have a shadow. Good morning. This is Master Lim, and my name is Jeremy Lobdell. I've just got a quick question so I can make sure I got it straight before the second service. Did we have any copyright information on that last song? No. Why was that? Oops. What did you say, Ralph? Was it original? It was original by the people who performed it. Is that correct? Wow. How about that? All right. That was cool. Well, speaking of performances, I understand there was a bit of a botched performance yesterday. Yeah. Whoa. Didn't I tell you the kicker was important? Did I not say that? Okay, you have to focus. <laughs> focus, watch the ball, catch the snap, be ready. Well, that's a great illustration because today we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 4. And basically the theme of that chapter is that we need to focus. Now, I'm the guy who grew up in the Karate Kid generation, and so I can never release that statement from my mind, focus, daniel son, you know? It's like, aha. What better way to talk about focus than the masters of focus themselves, the martial arts experts. This is my friend, Jaywan Lim. So welcome her here, please. I'm, what I'd like to do is just ask her a couple questions quickly about focus, and then she will actually show you what real focus looks like. Okay, so Master Lim, tell me about the importance of focus in the martial arts. Well, focus is very important, obviously, when we're talking about learning, an ex learning a technique, executing a technique, or having to apply a technique. So we talk about that a lot in class, especially with our young children. Young children, okay. So I have young children, and I'm thinking focus is pretty challenging at times. So um, let me ask you, what are some of the um, struggles or distractions or things that might dissuade one of your students from focusing properly? Well, especially when working with little kids, there are plenty of distractions, whether it's someone um, trying to get the attention of somebody else or making silly noises in class or getting anxious to wait their turn. Uh, they get distracted very easily. But if we try to, you know, remind them what they're doing, maybe highlight somebody else that they're do that who's doing something right, it helps and we, we get them to regroup. Okay, so some of the strategies for helping them to refocus would be, say that again because I was kind of latching on to that in Nehemiah. Uh, well, uh, what I like to do usually is try to highlight one of the, one of the students who is definitely has good focus. That way they um, can take that from example mm -hmm. and um, they can do the right thing as opposed to having to reprimand them for doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. Okay, sweet. So let's take an example then of what real focus looks like. Show us what that right. means. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to hold a board. I am going to execute a technique. Now, you're on the board or on me? On the board. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm just making sure here. And um, it's going to be pretty simple, but it's one that we practice a lot. Okay. Um, and so let's give we it a We being? Me, my kids, my students. But not me. No, not okay. yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. But you're good, right? Uh, I'm okay. Generally yeah. don't miss? I don't miss. Okay, good. All right. Okay. I'm ready. So what am I doing? All right. 
I'm hanging on for my life. All right. Uh huh. Ready? I think. Oh boy. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Who wants a souvenir? Thank you, Master Lim. Very good. All right. I am really glad that wasn't me. That was fast. We actually did practice it one time earlier this week, and she wasn't nearly as um, explanatory, and so she's like, okay, hold the board, hold the board, and pop, whoa. I said, wow, okay, that was fast. There we go. So there is focus, and my encouragement to you today, and I think that of Nehemiah, as you look at someone who's doing it right, as Master Lim has said, is to focus. Now, indeed, there's things that distract you in martial arts, and there's just things that distract you in life, and there's things that attempt to distract Nehemiah in this book as well. And today, as we move along in our series, we're coming to that point, the sort of crucial point of the opposition. You know, up until now, things have been going fairly decent for Nehemiah. You know, he's felt the call of God, he's got the permission, he's moving forward, he's Uh, got the paperwork in order, he's gathered intel, he's come to the city, the people have responded, and everyone's like, woohoo, let's go, all right. And now, the stuff hits the fan, so to speak. Opposition, in a major way. And so what I'd like to do today is basically move this sermon in three steps. I first of all want to uh, help you sort of uh, get step back for a moment and refresh the macro theme or get the big picture, see the forest, and then we'll jump into the trees, but help you connect the dots between chapters. So from chapter to chapter, what's going on here? What's the purpose of this book? Why is the Lord working and moving in this way? What's the theme? Are these just a bunch of random, unconnected stories, or is this intentional? Then, after that, I want to highlight, as this chapter does, the opposition that Nehemiah faces... And then also sort of relate that in general to the opposition we face. Because surely if we're human beings living in this world, we have faced opposition. And even though this is a long time ago in a different circumstance, I think you'll find many of the things that he goes through as nearly identical to the stuff that we go through. And then finally, we'll look at his response and say, okay, here's a good example of focus of the right way to deal with this. How do we do that then? How do we do it? So we're just going to walk through those basic things, and in there I'm going to intermingle different applications and stuff. But the idea is big idea, and then today's text, and then sort of the response. All right, so let's look at the big idea. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you uh, remember the first sermon, I began with a question. um, Is the book of Nehemiah the story of Nehemiah. And while at first that question sounded like, huh, what, what do you mean? I said, well, think about it. Is the story of, if it's the gospel of John, the gospel of John? Or is the book of John, the story of John? Well, no more so than the book of Genesis is the story of Adam, or the book of Genesis is the story of Abram. Instead, it's not the story of Adam, it is the story of Yahweh, it is not the story of Abram, but of the coming Messiah of the Christ. Consequently, Nehemiah is not the story of Nehemiah, but instead the story of Nehemiah's God. 
And so the bigger macro theme, the connecting thread that weaves this thing all together is that it is like all other stories in Scripture, the story of God. And what you will see as we walk through this book over and over again is that Nehemiah is going to emphasize the great and awesome covenant-keeping God. Over and over again, this is who he is, the big God who is also faithful. And that plays in then to how Nehemiah will appeal to him, to God, and how the story will unfold. Based on God's character, we can expect this. If he was an arbitrary, mean, delinquent God, we may not not know what to expect. Because of who he is, therefore, we appeal to his promises and we can be guaranteed XYZ results. That is the way this book works. So chapter 1 emphasizes that. It is the story of Nehemiah's great and awesome, covenant-keeping God, achieving his ends for the sake of his great name. Now chapter 2 then jumps down into a little um, finer detail, and it says, now look how God is doing that. Look at God's hand upon Nehemiah. Look at God's hand in this situation. Look at God's hand in this situation. Three different times in one little chapter, over and over again, you hear this phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Indeed, if you're paying attention to your life group questions this week, it was one of the first questions asked, what do we see in this chapter? We see over and over again the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. That's what's moving this thing forward. Not the hand of Nehemiah, the hand of Nehemiah, the hand of Nehemiah. It's the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. Then chapter 3 begins to move you through this process, and it says, okay, now look, uh, Nehemiah's involved, but it's the hand of the Lord moving it forward. But there are other people too. He's not the only actor. The whole congregation comes together. This is a group effort. And look at all these different families and tribes and clans who all pitched in and did their part. Chapter 3. It lists them specifically. Now, chapter 4, we move into the point of resistance. Where the author, Ezra, in the memoirs of Nehemiah, is describing what happens. When the bad guys show up and what Nehemiah does in response. So then, what we have called this series, hopefully this is starting to make sense, is that it is restore, or rebuild, restore, revive. And that is because you are seeing God rebuild the wall for the purpose of restoring his city in order to revive his people. It's not just some little project that he's doing on the side for fun, but it's an intentional movement of God for his sake and for his glory according to his covenant, through his covenant people. Restore, rebuild, revive. So, here we go then with uh, chapter 2. Um, I'm, start, I'm giving you the, a couple verses in chapter 2 to get into chapter 4 because I left them out uh, last week because I want to deal with the opposition in one shot. So, let me show you what happens then. First of all, you have the great and awesome God and things are moving forward. But then all of a sudden, chapter 2, verse 10, here we go. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people 
of Israel. Now, I want to focus in on that little phrase, it displeased them greatly. Immediately, the question comes to my mind, why? I mean, who cares? Here's a few little Jews playing with their tinker toys, building up a wall around a small town. Big deal. Who cares? Why do we care? It's not like this is Cairo, the great armies of Egypt building up an empire, bringing their chariots, and all of a sudden they're going to rebel. It's not like this is a revived Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It's not like we're talking about the great Babylon. Who is going to rival Medo-Persia? Who cares? Let them do their thing. Why in the world would this little tiny group of people be of any significance? Well, it's basically the same reason that anyone is bothered about anything. And that is because it was to their disadvantage. It was to their disadvantage. Basically, if you look at this situation, what you see is um, some local officials who are concerned that all of a sudden, oh, there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak, and they're going to build their own structures. As a result, my power will diminish. My taxation base will be decreased. My revenues will go down. And they may even might even gain favor with the king that I don't have. This doesn't sound like it's helping me and my kingdom. This is for someone else. Therefore, I'm not so sure what I think about this. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever experienced anything like this? I mean, you know, we can look at it on a macro scale. We can say from our seats, hey, for example, look at the U.N., Here's this group of hundreds of nations, and they can't even figure out how to you know, feed a few people who are starving. Why? Because if we give away this rice, it might make the price of rice come down. And we don't want to do that because that's going to hurt our farmers or our industry. We certainly wouldn't want to feed all those people. Why would we stop these people from slaughtering each other when, I mean, it's ridiculous. Hundreds and hundreds of people who are set up for the purpose of providing peace and stability who can't even agree on a single thing because they're all seeking after their own interest. We talk about peace and we talk about prosperity and we talk about helping others, but then all of a sudden if it hurts us, we're like, whoa, stop, stop. No, can't do that. Don't agree. Why? Well, because then you don't get to sell them the missiles or bombs and you're upset. It hurts you because it's to their disadvantage. Well, that only happens at the international level, right? It never happens with nations or states, communities, organizations, churches. We never fight over territory or turf or anything like that, right? Families? Surely we're not territorial in that department. I look around and I see something very different. I see my children, and me, arguing about the number of marshmallows we put in our hot chocolate. Hey, he got six. I only got five. Come on. What? You will survive without one marshmallow. You'll be okay. And we chuckle about that, but that's the reality of the human condition. It's funny in little kids, but it's not funny in nations. It's not funny in families. 
And it's not funny in churches at all. And here it is in Nehemiah, and these people are opposed to a good work. Why? Because it doesn't suit their own ends. It's not to their advantage. And therefore they oppose it. Even though it's good for the whole, it's not good for them. And so they're like, forget this. And I imagine you've experienced that in some group, whether it's in a club or an organization or a church, and you're trying to get the committee to come together, and you're like, look, this is a really good idea. And then somebody's else like, well, that might do this over here. And it's like, oh, man, somebody's going to get mad because they're not getting their thing. Here we go. Opposition. Now, watch. Guided by their own self-interest, their fears, and their insecurities, watch how they respond. Verse 19 says, we were in verse 10 of chapter 2, now we're in verse 19. It says, when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice this classic response. I mean, was Nehemiah rebelling against the king? He had papers from the king himself in hand, right? Artaxerxes officially stamped and sealed this and said, go do it. This is what Artaxerxes wanted. Was their accusation anywhere close to accurate? No. Are accusations in general? No. (laughs) That's the reason people accuse you of things. Was Jesus a false teacher? Who accused him of being a false teacher? The false teachers. Was Jesus a servant of Beelzebub? Who accused him of being a servant of Beelzebub? (laughs) The servants of Beelzebub. Here's a hint. The nature of the accusation reveals the nature of the person. Because that's what they would do in that instance if they could. And these guys are thinking, man, if we could get out from under his thumb, just think of all the money we could save in tribute and taxes and everything else. I don't want these people over here to do that. Then they'd have an extra marshmallow that I don't. There's no way they're getting six and I'm getting five. I need to fight for that. And so they go after him and they do what all accusers do. They don't come up with anything accurate or logical or reasonable. Instead, they question the motive and redefine the intent. They question the motive and redefine the intent. And I, you know, having some small town pastor experience, say, wow, <laughs> there is small town politics at its best. Little Jerusalem and these guys, I mean, they are doing everything you've probably seen before. It's a little bit like this. Somebody walks into the hair salon or the water aerobics class or the grain elevator or the local noon golf game. And they say, ah, I heard so-and-so was doing such and such. And they're like, yeah, I think he's doing that to his farm or they're doing this to that. And, yeah, that's true. And they're like, well, you know why he's doing it, don't you? No, why? Tell me. Well, I don't really want to say for sure, but what do you think about this? Do you think he's doing it because of that? I don't know, but... And here goes the opposition, and they do the exact same thing. We're not actually saying that he's rebelling against the king, but, you know... What are you doing, Nehemiah? Are you rebelling against the king? Is that what you're up to? 
And they impose these completely inappropriate motivations into their accusations. And I know it would be tempting if it were me, or perhaps if it were you, to be Nehemiah at this point and say, Stop it, you! (laughs) That's not true! I'm doing this for God. His hand is upon me. Look, over and over again, you should see this. Not only that, but I've got this stack of paperwork that says it's from the king. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. His response is entirely different, and it's a beautiful example for us of what to do when we face opposition. And here he is with these accusations right in front of him, you know, and, if, and again, if it were me, it would be hard not to argue against it because, I mean, in my mind, it's like this. It's like, okay, we want to go to the pond, but there is a barn in front of us. Okay, let's take our sheep around the left and go to the pond and get them a drink. But then the neighbor farmer says, oh, what are you doing? Going to the pond, trying to drink up all the water so nobody else gets to share any? No, my sheep needed a drink. It's like, well... You probably went around the left side so that you trample down all my grass and not mess with yours. Sorry, I should have gone around the right side, you know. And in the end, what you come to the realization is that, you know what, if you're going somewhere, the right decision is the right decision. And you can go around the barn to the left or to the right, and in the end, it really doesn't matter. And yet, what the opposition will do, this is true in Nehemiah, this is true in your life too, Even if they realize what you did was right, the way to come at you is not by questioning what you did, but your intent or how you got there. And so they'll say, well, I just don't like the way that you did that. Okay. (laughs) I mean, sorry. (laughs) We got it done. We went around to the left. We went around to the right. Whatever. Well, why did you do that? Well, we thought we were doing the right thing. And if you get caught up and tangled into all that, all of a sudden you're dealing with these major issues of conflict on the side and you're no longer looking at the goal and you're completely distracted and you've lost your focus. Abraham Lincoln said that when in the Civil War, if he spent all his time answering the complaints and letters that were sent into his office, he would have done nothing else whatsoever for the country. At some point, you've got to say, we're focused on doing on the right thing, and we can't get distracted by all the rest. Yes, the opposition is going to oppose us. Yes, they're going to question our intent. Yes, they're going to go after our motives and the way we did it. But here we are. Here we are. Nehemiah chapter 4. This is the setting then. These people have set up Nehemiah. They're putting him in a vulnerable position. They're trying to undercut him, to undermine his authority to create a rebellion in the ranks, to get the people against him and say, hey, what is this guy doing? Why is he doing it? How can we trust him? Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, see, he didn't come to... Nehemiah, he just mocked him in front of everybody else. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? 
Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, look at that. <laughs> what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down their stone wall. Now, here's Nehemiah's response. No, actually, we used good structural engineering, and this wall is steady. No, not what he said. Verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to become closed, they were angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Then there was a rumbling in the ranks in verse 10. It was said in Judah, Remember, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now at that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times, Return, you must return to us. So in the lowest part, parts of the space behind the wall in open places I stationed the people by their clans with their swords their spears and their bows and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people do not be afraid of them remember the Lord your God the great and awesome God and fight for your brothers your sons your daughters your wives and your homes Nehemiah's response to the opposition. Look at verses 8 and 9 again, and let me point out to you the beauty of Hebrew parallelism. Two subjects, two verbs, completely opposite. Two people, two hearts, completely different. They plotted, we prayed. They plotted, we prayed. What an incredible and beautiful contrast. The difference between the people of God and their enemies is this. They plot, we pray. They try to come up with a solution themselves. We go to the solution itself. They plot, we pray. I love this so much because what it does is it shows Nehemiah admitting his own sort of weakness and vulnerability. He is saying, in a sense, hey, look, I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah, I know they're working up something no good. They are plotting. There's some meeting going on. They're planning bad stuff for us. And if we get all flustered and focused in on what that is, we're just going to be worried and scared stiff. They're plotting, I know, but my only response is to pray. I don't know the future, but I know the one who does. 
Consequently, that's where I'm going to go. And my prayer is pretty simple then. And I imagine Nehemiah saying something like this, Lord, they are plotting against us. And we need your help. Lord, do the right thing. We know you will. Because you're you. You are our good shepherd. And you say that your rod and your staff will comfort us. And Lord, we need your rod right now. Use it. Because your arm can reach out to places where we can't. We're asking you to strike down the enemy, not for our own sake, but because of your great name. It is being mocked and defiled, and people are trying to thwart and oppose your purposes. God, reach out. Reach out. Some people read this prayer, and they're like, oh, no, what's going on here? Nehemiah is just praying for the Lord to accomplish his purpose. And anyone who tries to thwart that or get in the way will be destroyed. That's a clear theme in Scripture. And so despite the fact that things look so chaotic, Nehemiah can stop and pray. The psalmist says it like this. He says, Lord, whom am I in heaven but you? There is nothing else I desire on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, they fail every day. I feel tired and weak. My spirit gets low. I am not strong enough to keep going. But you, Lord, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, you're it. And I need you right now. Because I'm being opposed. Look, when things are getting messy and uncomfortable, you do not have to engage in all of it. And it's not withdrawal to go into your closet and pray. Instead, it's the most active warfare you can engage in. This is ways in which you will um, take advantage of powers the enemy can't even imagine. You have a smart weapon that can strike anywhere at any time. It's called prayer. Use it. Don't let it sit there. Pick it up and wield it. This is part of your power. Call on God through the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Word and watch great things happen. Why? For He is the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His promises, His covenant, and steadfast love for those who fear Him. That's where it's at. That's where you find the real power. It's not in bombs or or weapons of mass destruction. It's in God Himself. Nehemiah prays and he says, Look, guys, Here's how we're going to do this. You need to focus. The final verse of this section says, Look, I said to the people, when they're all stirred up and concerned, don't be afraid of them. Instead, remember the Lord your God. Again, there's that contrast. And in fact, the Hebrew makes it jump out even more because the word here, afraid of them, comes from the Hebrew word, word yare. Now, guess what word is the, is the Hebrew word for awesome? Yare. The same one. Fear and fear contrasted in a very different way. What you have is fear of enemies versus fear of the Lord. And it's a totally different thing because in one sense you have the divine warrior. In other sense you have the human opposition. 
One you should fear, the others you shouldn't. And what Nehemiah wants to do is refocus the people upon the one who is truly worthy of fear. These others do not deserve the respect, the honor, the attention, or the time that you're giving them. Don't pay attention to them. Look up at him. Focus, guys. Fear the Lord your God. He is the great and awesome God. Look, Deuteronomy says it like this. The Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Understand your place here. Be quiet and ask for help. And God will fight. And you'll be okay. That is Nehemiah's approach. And that should be our approach as well. To focus on the truly fearful divine warrior, God himself. Over and over you see this theme repeated through scripture. In Deuteronomy, the Lord fights before his people in Egypt. In Joshua, he conquers the land. In Joshua 10.14, he says, you know, when the Lord fights, there's no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice, that is the prayers of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. In chapter 23, he says, one man puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Don't fear the enemy. Fear God. What are the armies of Pharaoh to him who the wind and the waves obey? What are the hordes of nations to he who commands angels? What are hydrogen bombs to he who lit the sun? Nothing. It is but a breath and a wind and a vapor to Almighty God who can simply say, Phew, away with this little thing. No big deal. Fear God. That's where it's at. When you are under attack, the way to respond is not by getting in a tussle and looking at your enemies and trying to engage and argue with them, but instead is to focus. Look at God and see who is truly to be feared. And then you begin to pray and interact with him. And that's where your strength lies. Because your heart and your flesh will fail. Your friends are not enough. Nothing else is. Only God. You don't go to Artaxerxes. You go to the one true king. This is what Nehemiah calls us to do, is to focus ourselves on God. So again, then I remind you, basically, here's the theme. The theme of the book, the theme of the Bible. The great and awesome covenant-keeping God accomplishing his purpose for his great name. Yes, there will be opposition. Look at the Bible. There's opposition all throughout. Even Jesus had Judas. Nobody wants the good guys to succeed, especially when it's to their disadvantage. But in the end, we know that right will win. And so, what do we do? They plot, we pray. They plot, we pray. We focus on God, on Him who is to truly be feared, 
because he is our only hope. His character and his covenant are our hope. What shall we say then? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he then not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You've seen what he did. Why don't you think he'll come through? He gave you his son. What more can he give? Ask. Pray. Focus. They fought. We prayed. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, like Sambalot and Tobiah. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. This last week I had the pleasure of um, encouraging my children to clean up their room. You know, you've probably never done this before, right? Guys, it's time to clean up your room. You know, it's bedtime. Oh, boy, I just walked into the room. Big mess. Here we go. Now, fortunately, this one evening, he agreed and he cooperated. And all of a sudden, he's picking up, you know, his little blocks. And there's still, you know, you know, Playmobil and Lego and army guys and Hot Wheel cars and all sorts of things that dads do not like to step on in the middle of the night all over the floor. And while he's sitting there obeying me and cooperating, I'm watching him pick up like one block at a time. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, this is going to take a while, right? But I'm also thinking, he's doing what I asked. I'm good with that. My will or my desire is that he cleans up his room. And he's participating in the process. But really, I'm going to clean it up. So five minutes, I'm like, you know, Legos, George, Army guys, George, you know, and going through Playmobil, you know, horses, swords, shields, helmets, guys. And in about five minutes, we've got this whole wreck picked up. Now, what happened? Did my son pick up his room? Well, yeah, I mean, kind of. I told him to. I let him participate. I encouraged him. I kind of was the driver behind it. And together, we got it done. Because he submitted and obeyed to me and followed my will. So too in the book of Nehemiah. Now the Lord calls this guy to build a wall. And he goes and he does his thing and he collects data and he grabs a brick or two. But really, was Nehemiah doing this? The hand of God was in it. And the author spells it out the whole way through. And that's the beauty of Nehemiah. It's because he's not a silly little kid. He realizes it. He's like, yeah, I'm building the rock, but God, it's you. It's you the whole way through. They plot, we pray. Lord God, according to your will, in, in consistency with your covenant, for the sake of your great name, will you please do this? We're being attacked. We're being opposed. We want to accomplish your purpose. Lord, will you step in? Because you're where it's at. God, lead us, guide us, protect us. This is the example of Nehemiah. 
We're, we as a uh, leadership group, we as a church, we are desperately praying that that can become part of your life. That you will truly focus in on God and say, He is my objective. He is my goal. He is my greatest, highest treasure. He is the greatest good, His glory, His kingdom. Those are my purposes. And when you pursue that, you know people will oppose you. But even so, come Lord Jesus. You focus in on Him and say, Lord, here we go. As a church, as families, as a community, this is what we want to do. Will you please be with us? God, we trust you do the right thing because that's what you do you guys bow your heads with me in prayer father we're thankful for who you are what a gift lord to be able to even talk to you we look at our situation and we see a lot of different stuff we try to do the right thing and sometimes we fail we can go this way or that way and we don't know only you do we pray in the And God, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perfectly in every way in keeping with your great name. For you are the great and awesome covenant-keeping God whose love and steadfast mercies endure through all generations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.